Before we get started, you should probably know that the following podcast contains strong language and conversations of an adult nature. Also, it will almost certainly contain spoilers. And welcome to episode 15 of Strong Language and Violent Scenes, the podcast giving a second chance to films that might not deserve them. I'm Mitch Bain, I'm a horror writer and an occasional doer of musical things. And I'm Andy Stewart, I'm the Incredible Melton Man. You're certainly an advocate of the Incredible Melton Man. <laughs> Which is why we're here. Yeah. So yeah, I'm a bit, I'm a bit worried. I feel like, <laughs> like I, I didn't feel this worried when I did Friday the Thirteenth Part Five. I was quite chilled out about that, but in this case, I'm feeling a little bit anxious. When you did, when we did Friday the Thirteenth Part Five, there was no guarantee that literally anyone was going to listen to it. That is true. That now that is there's true. now I'm kind of hoping that at least some people will listen to it. Yeah, yeah, and I'm looking across it, you know, and you've you've got these slightly narrowed eyes, and I'm a bit worried. I oh, this I'm is... just feeling a bit concerned. Plus, you've been very tight-lipped about what you thought. Yeah, so um, just for context, we have just, uh, obviously, inevitably, uh, first off, of course, uh, we are guestless this week. We are, yes. Um, yeah, we had a dropout. Yeah, we did have a dropout, but that's no big deal. That'll be rescheduled in yes. the near future. We're working on that at the moment. And, uh, yeah, the show must go on, and in the spirit of that, we did revert back to the age-old head-to-head. Yep, that final tradition. Uh, way back in episode one, back. Andy made a case for Friday the 13th part five. And in episode three, I made the case for detention. <laughs> Twelve episodes later, here we are again. And of course, the pendulum swings back to Andy. And you've gone for 1977's The Incredible Melting Man. William Sachs's film from 1977, yes. Right. So let's take a minute to... I mean, I'm not going to treat you any different than I do any of the other guests. Okay. So uh, in the spirit of that, Tell us a little bit about your background with this film. Okay, so uh, if anyone knows me at all, they know that I'm a big fan of body horror films. Yeah, indeed. And um, I remember one of the earliest body horror films that I saw was The Fly, and I became obsessed with body horror films, and I started to seek them out, seeking out things like Body Melt, Street Trash, and this. And like I say, I kind of became absolutely obsessed with, with these kind of gloopy, gungy, awful films. As much as I love Street Trash and... I'm less warm on body melt apart from the fact that Harold Bishop from Neighbours is in it yeah. uh, but uh, yeah this, this is one that always kind of it's maybe the worst out of the bunch in a way but for me it's always one that I've uh, felt a particular kinship with worst um, how hmm? worst how uh, <laughs> you've seen the film uh, look I know it's not the best film ever made okay right? But uh, it's by no means the worst film, and I don't think it's deserving of the, a lot of the hate that it gets. I really don't, because there's there's a real heart to it. It might not always be the most clearly defined in the film due to some of the stuff that goes on, but there is a real heart to it, and it is a real tragic story. And yeah, I think there's there's actually quite a lot to love about The Incredible Melton Man. Now, when you say it doesn't deserve some of the hate that it gets, I mean, I think it is worth kind of pointing out yeah. that the hate for this film is not in short supply. No, it's not in short supply. It's regarded pretty lowly. What did we say? It's currently 3.9 on IMDb and 7% on Rotten Tomatoes. 7%, yeah. Which isn't great. No, but again, like we say... isn't great. But Rotten Tomatoes is also not the best gauge No, opinion. that's true. But, I mean, I think looking at it, perhaps as an accomplished film, perhaps it falls down quite a lot. 
as a story. Perhaps it has problems and things that could have been tightened up, but I do think there's a lot of heart in it, and certainly, a, it's certainly a technical achievement in a lot of ways. I think. Okay, right. Okay, well, we, we can we'll get, get, get to that. that. Yeah. Now, right. before we go any further, okay, don't think that you were going to get away without doing a thirty-second synopsis. <laughs> Fuck off. No, definitely. You're yeah. You're not exempt. You're not really going to make me do this. Yes. Really? Absolutely, hundred percent. I. Oh. It is I who has put thirty seconds on the clock this week. <laughs> You're the, the the master of time. I am. I am. <laughs> right. uh, okay. So. Uh, oh. Uh, okay. Right. You good to go? Yeah. 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 Three, two, one, go. Uh, so it's the story of uh, some astronauts, uh, Steve West, Marshall McManus, Michael Wells. They are the crew of the Scorpio 5. They're on a historic mission to Saturn. Um, while they're up there, their spaceship is bombarded in some kind of solar particle event, um, which kills uh, Wells and McManus, and only West comes back to Earth. Uh, however, when he comes back to Earth, he uh, is kind of melting, and he's hungry for human cells, and he runs off uh, into the wilderness and kills a lot of people while his best friend, Ted Nelson, tries to find him. Time. Not bad. Not bad at all. It. Yeah, I, think I, I, did it. I would say that's close. I would say that you potentially overran by a second. I would and I would say, say so. you, you did what, <laughs> and he and he did what with the uh, thirty seconds synopsis. I'm going to start calling the McIntyre, right? Which is, is that, what Tyler did. Is that and, the last second ramble? Uh, well, he described it as no. That's but that <laughs> that was what Blair did. <laughs> that's one of my favorites, actually. No, when Tyler did the thirty seconds synopsis for Memoirs of Invisible Man. He described it as the spending the first twenty seconds on the first ten pages and then racing through the rest of it. Yeah. Oh, we've just got that okay. again. Yeah, um, yeah. So, uh, uh, so I think that that was kind of what that was. But yeah, no. In terms of setting the scene, not bad. That's a lot harder than it seems. We hadn't come up with that the last time that I'd done it. That when I did it for detention. So That's I'm, true. So I'm looking forward to having to do it when my time comes again. But uh, let's jump into this thing. And yeah. as you correctly said, we begin aboard the Scorpio 5. The Scorpio 5, yep. Where it's, a, it's a mission to Saturn, to be yes. the first people to set foot on Saturn, despite the fact that that's 1.2 billion kilometres away. It's ambitious. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, certainly, it certainly is. But yeah, uh, pretty confident here. Uh, things are getting thrown around like you've never seen anything until you've seen the sun through the rings of Saturn. Magnificent. You've never seen anything. Until you've seen the sun through the rings of Saturn. Yeah, that's one of my favourite wee lines in anything. Uh, I just think that it's uh, it's just delivered with such awe and such love. Uh, yeah, that's fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. You've got, so you've got your three guys. Um, what are their names again? Uh, you've got Wells, McManus and West. Wells, McManus and West. They're on board there looking pretty tightly packed. Yeah, it's not. there's not a lot, a lot of elbow room. There's not a lot of room to swing a cat. Certainly. No, absolutely not. No, and um, I think our assumption is that our, our kind of protagonist, if you will, Steve, is the man in the middle. Yeah, yeah. I feel like Steve is the captain of this, of this, uh, I guess, mission, I think. Yes, yeah. Uh, I mean, they throw all in around a lot of kind of space nonsense, a lot of gobbledygook chat, which I don't know how much basis it actually has in real space travel. No, but they do lay that on pretty thick um, yeah. in the background. Not in a kind of, like, bludgeoning you to death kind of way. It's just, like, a lot of, <laughs> a lot of it is there um, for kind of colour. Yeah. And then what they've done is they obviously didn't have any money to really do uh, space effects of any sort from outside the window. <laughs> so nope. they just use a lot of stock footage uh, of the moon and stuff like that so uh it's quite charming in that regard again yeah i would agree and then all of a sudden they're bombarded like i say you see like uh, stock footage of solar flares and stuff which is supposed to indicate i presume some kind of solar event bombarding them with radiation uh steve you know he's in trouble because he has a nosebleed yeah and that's about and that's as much as we get immediately yeah that's that's the 
pretty much the whole backstory. It's revisited a few times throughout the film, but uh, never in any more detail than that. No, just to get like, yeah, like, yeah. I say, never in a way that's any more illustrative. It's no, just no, a reminder no, that it happened. No, it doesn't need happened. to be illustrated any further than that. The science is shaky. But it's a sci-fi film. You can like you can you can play fast and loose with the rules. I think you can, and I think that also I, th- I a lot of where a lot of sci-fi and a lot of not even necessarily sci-fi, just stuff that is, takes a root in actual proper science. I think that a lot of the time films can stymie their own momentum by getting bogged down in over explanation. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah, I would agree. Um. So uh, and yeah, no danger of that happening here. <laughs> and um, uh, we cut, we cut very abruptly. To a yeah. hospital where we find yeah, but basically that... I think we're in any town USA. Absolutely, yeah. yeah, yeah. But it's very much uh, nondescript, almost desert country. Yeah, it seems I think that there's way. A lot of scrub and cacti and stuff around. And um, we find that well, it's Steve West, played um, by Alex Rubar. Alex Rubar, yeah, and uh, he is we find the only survivor. He, yeah, he's a sole survivor from the, the which Scorpio means though Paris. that he has travelled back one point two billion kilometers on his own, which is holy a, shit, a yeah. hell of a lonely fucking drive. Especially since like considering the condition that we find him in. Yeah, I don't know if maybe his conditions kicked off by re-entering Earth's atmosphere. I'm speculating here. I'm adding story where story doesn't exist. That's but, true. Uh, perhaps that's what <laughs> you are. You are. You are. You are adding story where story possibly should exist. Yeah, perhaps, but. Uh, when you kind of first introduced to Steve and then back in uh, back on terra firma I yeah. feel like he doesn't really look that well he looks pretty bad but he's still identifiably human, human face yeah he's got like a, he's got like his kind of like entire profile has got a regular human shape he's heavily bandaged but you can tell that there's yeah. some structural integrity there yeah so maybe I mean either that or it was or his condition accelerates very very dramatically very quickly um, because that is a long, long drive. Uh, yes, you are correct. But so we we get a little bit of uh, chat between the doctor and the nurse. Yeah, Doctor Loring. Doctor Loring, that's right. Yeah, mm-hmm. and they leave, and very almost immediately afterwards, Steve wakes up and uh, sees his hands for the first time. Uh, yeah. And what we get is our first look at what is or what becomes an increasingly impressive range of practical effects. Yeah, worth noting uh, special effects by Rick Baker, who I know you just watched the American movie from London. Mm-hmm. He obviously was the man behind all that. That's and that was stuff was spectacular. As yeah, well. and like did thriller and stuff like that as well. So like the guys got serious credentials yeah, behind yeah, them. So uh, maybe there's an argument he's maybe slumming it a little bit here, but still doing the best I think with uh, the meager budget that was at his disposal. Oh yeah, I think I, I think that um, one of the things that I think the film does exceptionally well is that. I think th- <laughs> I'm choosing my words really carefully yeah, here. I don't want the I, thing the film does I, well. I don't want to show too many of my cards here, but yeah, I think yeah. that one of the things that works in its favour is that the practical effects front to back. Yeah, there's also great. a very fleeting uh, on on the kind of hospital bed clipboard thing that you get the mm-hmm. charts and stuff on it, and it does say in red writing that he's a da- he's a radiation risk. Mm-hmm. Um, but no one seems bothered. No one's wearing any sort of protection whatsoever, so it can't be that. Well, it can't be that major. If there's one thing we love on this podcast, it's medical negligence. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's right at home with some of the other selections. And, uh, yeah, pretty quickly, Dr. Loring establishes that nothing he's doing is helping Steve at all. So he suggests that they call in the the they call for the assistance of Dr. Ted Nelson. Yes. Which is uh, a name that you'll hear a lot throughout this, uh, throughout the film. Yeah, uh, definitely. But yeah, so Steve wakes up, sees his hands. Uh, they're, understa- just, they're big gloves. Yeah, but like, but he, he understandably has a bit of a freak out. Yeah, uh, pulls the bandages off his face. His face is fucked, for want of a better expression. Not as fucked as it'll get. But yeah, but I mean, like, he's compa- still got a moustache in that compared to what we saw before, you know. So he, <laughs> he starts trashing the place, and I know that you said that uh, this is something that is a regret of the directors. But see the fact yeah. that he's got that bandage. It's like gloriously goopy. 
Go- like, it's goofy as fuck, but he's got this bandage stuck to his face. See, I really like that though. I think oh, that, like, right. I, like, I, I like, I know it looks kind of silly, but like, it also, I always find, you know, what if if you are taking a plaster off, or you're taking a bandage off, or something, and mm-hmm. something sticks, I always think it looks disgusting, and having to deal with it is gross. Is that so? When you see that, you're like, ugh. You think that's then adding then to the for me, yeah, to the to the first stage Incredible Mountain Man that we see, yeah, which is kind of like he's obviously in a bad way, but there's also something that feels identifiably kind of human about it as well. Okay, um, well that's good. And at this point, the nurse comes back in, uh, drops the whole big thing of blood. She was, uh, yeah, carrying. she was going to. Yeah, Doctor Loring advised that course of whole blood. Um, uh, she and she she takes off running in what is comfortably one of the most baffling sequences of the film. Uh, <laughs> what? Go on. So he gives chase, and then mm-hmm. uh, you cut to this wide shot of her running in slow motion down a corridor, which I resolutely do not believe is in the same building. No, 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 like, I think it, uh, like, no, I think it's a. It seems to be a warehouse. Well, yeah, sort of I was going to say an it's, electrical. It seems to be that we've gone from a hospital to what appears to be like some sort of like meatpacking facility or well, something like substation, that. Substation, electrical substation. Yeah, it's huge. Um, yeah. But she's running inevitably a hundred. I'd say a, a hundred foot long corridor. A hundred percent, definitely. <laughs> um, uh, it's all more than that, I would say. But like, so she's running and she's hysterical and she's screaming. And at no point does her like hysteria abate, and we watch her running for a really long time in slow motion. In slow motion, <laughs> and he never appears behind her. Like no. f- for all, like it's yeah, he doesn't look like he's making up any ground at all. And then she powers clean through a plain glass door for some reason. Yeah, and the then, thinnest, flimsiest glass you've ever seen. And then he's made the ground up instantly. Yeah, um, uh, the uh, he's con- he's maybe six foot away from her when she starts running. Maybe. Yeah, and then um, but then she opened up. She opened up a huge lead, and then surrendered that lead instantly. Um, and then we, we she gets get, attacked in the car park and it cuts off at that point. We do get to see Steve's Steve vision, melty vision, and it's just his kind of... From his perspective, His yeah. kind of melty hands uh, in the foreground chasing after her. I think it's really cool. Oh, yeah, the sequence is fine. Yeah, like, I'm, but he, he, he goes for it. And uh, we again, we cut, like, kind of... He's at, Even at this stage, by the way, he's melting at a fairly advanced yeah, rate. Yeah, yeah. I think it's worth noting as well that as she busts through the, the plate glass door, there is a sign on the wall that says that this is a psychoradiological research centre. A psychoradiological research centre. Yeah, so presumably of the mind and of the radiation. Yeah, um, I feel like that facility might be taking on too much. Well, you, you're commenting on what's going on in that, whether the, the hospital room is the same as the, that big long corridor with the electrical equipment along the yeah. sides. You don't know what goes on in a psychoradiological research centre. That's very true. That's very true. It's but, not It's not something I'm uh, I'm known from my knowledge of. Um, <laughs> so just as he's, he's about to catch her, basically, it cuts very abruptly to uh, yeah. the two doctors. Uh, so Dr. Loring and Dr. Ted Nelson, who we meet for the first Ted time. Ted Nelson, Bugs exa- Examining yeah. the body. And she's in some condition. Mm-hmm. Half of her head's missing. Yeah, she's she's like uh, she's been savaged mm-hmm. by uh, by Steve. So from the first words out of Ted Nelson's mouth, which I believe was Ted Nelson. No, it's not. <laughs> I believe it's a kind of sarcastic, <laughs> great thing. I kind yeah. of felt like we were onto something with this performance. Yeah, we, I'm not sure what. I'm still not sure what we were onto. Yeah, but well, Bob De Benning, he he was one of those quintessential American TV actors. He was in everything back in the day. Oh yeah. Every fucking TV show he had at least one one episode in. So he he was like he was like legit. Do you think that he's also in uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Part Five? Do you think that his TV uh, career may have been where he developed his fondness for the dramatic pause? He loves a dramatic pause. He loves a dramatic pause almost as much as he loves saying his own name. But I I think I certainly think that um, this has ruined Ted Nelson's day. Oh yeah, he's profoundly irritated more than anything else. (laughs) These events, and I don't know if it's so much that uh, he's really good friends with Steve. 
which we we find out kind of fleetingly, but they are particularly good friends. Yeah, there's a background um, to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah there's a story um, But I think he's more annoyed about having to report into General Perry about it. And that's what we see next. Yeah, he calls G- General Perry, who uh, picks up the phone in what is kind of like a very archetypal 70s film command centre room. Bleep, 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 yeah, those, are, those kind of sounds. <laughs> and light, lights that mean nothing. Yeah. on and off. Yeah. Yeah. And... At this point, we kind of like, yeah, we kind of, be, uh, as if we didn't already, we get an understanding of the gravity of the situation. We also understand, though, that, and uh, this is something that kind of puzzled me, that Steve, despite the fact that he is melting melting into a puddle, uh-huh. is also getting stronger. Yeah, yeah, going against everything that we know about, I guess, entropy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and just generally uh, what happens to things that melt. Yeah. yeah, he is getting stronger as he melts. Yeah, which is uh, which is uh, interesting. Yeah, I would certainly say so. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, you kind of we've got our background. We've had our first exposure to Steve. Mm-hmm. The, we, ch- the chase is on essentially. Yeah, we get an understanding that he's on the loose. That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. The groundwork is laid. You've got the people. You've got the pursuer and the pursuee. Yeah, he's on the loose. They know he's got a, he's got an appetite for uh, human cells because Ted talks about it. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, and those are the words that he uses, and he. Uh, yeah, <laughs> we are we are we are given we are given a TED talk about. It. Ah, <laughs> uh, they speculate on whether or not his, his condition might be contagious, um, and yeah, they they essentially come to the agreement. We need to get our hands on this guy and get him back and fix him up or lock him up or whatever. Yeah. And uh, in the meantime, we then cut to... I was going to say Steve having a little bit of fun on the trail. No one's having fun. No, but, um, least of all Steve. Yeah, but uh, also not having fun is the ancillary fisherman who... Uh, who <laughs> I love this guy. Yeah, um, he's great. So fisherman just nondescriptly fishing oh. in what's, I think, at best, a creek. I think, that- I think even a creek is being generous here. I don't know what qualifies... Is that a brook? A babbling brook? A brook, possibly, yeah. Either way, I would say that, like, slim pickings, I would say. Yeah, the chances of... I think the chances of coming across many fish in there beyond maybe the odd small minnow um, are quite slim. You kind of feel like that's not troubling him too much, though. You know, he's got a sandwich, he's got his beer. Yeah, I think it's more about the day out. Yeah, for totally. For him, to be honest. I uh, think it's more about having some time to himself and just a bit of quiet time. And where he can... Where he can do all of his favourite things like drink beer, fish, and describe what's going on out loud to nobody in particular. He's a narrator, in a uh, way. He is, yeah. Um, He's like I, one of those, you know, those uh, uh, subtext, those descriptive things for uh, people that are hard to uh, like hard to sight. Yeah. But it's uh, like, Steve walks through the woods. His feet leave sticky marks as he moves. Yeah, like, yeah. Like, it's that kind of. But soon he's like, huh, yeah, time for a beer. Um, and then yeah, there's a there's a disturbance which he goes to uh, which he goes to investigate, and obviously it's Steve, and um, he gets mauled, and what we get is um, what is a great looking prosthetic head landing in the river. Yeah, and a uh, uh, a protracted shot of off the head away. traveling downstream. Yeah, um, they get their money's worth on the head. They do. <laughs> And that's not the only time you see the head. No, I'm... Yeah. It's worth worth saying. The second time is brilliant. I always feel a bit sad when Steve stomps on that guy's sandwich. Yeah. I, like, for some reason, I was kind of a bit like, oh, man, as well. For some reason, I'm sadder about the sandwich than Than about about the guy getting killed and his head sploshing into the river. Yeah, same, actually. Um, It's so funny you should say that. I had the exact same thing when I was watching it just there. (laughs) Um... So I'm gonna contend that like see, see Ted Nelson, right? Right. Um, doctor. Yeah, Doctor Ted Nelson. Please. So we understand that he's kind of like treat him with a due respect. Well, this is it. How much respect's due here? Like, so um, excuse me. So um, I think that like 
it's a surprising lack of composure for someone who's been drafted in for this. So he goes home and... And the scene where he goes home... Well, he's on the phone to General Perry. The phone rings. Oh, they have that cool kind of uh, creep show... Kind of creep show swiping split screen thing. Yeah, which is uh, pretty which, cool. Which I love. But he has, that, he has a conversation uh, with General Perry, very abrupt to the point that General Perry hangs up on him. And for the second time. Ted flips his fucking lid about it. Um, oh, as his wife comes home and yeah. um, although one thing I did, like so like I say his wife comes home and he's having this, Judy yeah Judy thank you and he's kind of having this episode about being hung up on and things like that and basically kind of clues her end to what's going on <laughs> and you get kind of you get you get more of an allusion to the fact that uh, Ted and Steve have a kind of a background before yeah. this and one thing that I did kind of like here there's kind of a good character bit and I think something that's a little bit kind of like human behaviour in here um, which is when she's trying to calm him down. Judy's trying to calm him down. He sits down at the table. Is this the bit that we're, Well, he we, freaks out about crackers. Yeah, yeah, he's like, oh, did you pick up the crackers? He says, no. As concerned as he is about Steve, he has other pressing but, <laughs> other pressing concerns in his life as but, to like, whether his pregnant wife has picked him up crackers. But this is what people do in a crisis, though, or what some people do in a crisis, which is when you're faced with something that is massive and abstract that you can't control... You, I mean, this you, is a, you zero in on stuff that you can. You this can. is this man's friend as well. Yeah, exactly. So, so it's like so it's like it's a business and personal kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that like that must be overwhelming. So I think that what he does here is defaults to freaking about things that he does have normalcy things. Yeah, and I think people do that. Absolutely. I've seen myself do that in crisis before. So I thought that was interesting. See, this film's getting hundreds of shit going on. Yeah. When you dig in, let's get in. Let's get into. It. Also, you have the whole weird backstory between. Uh, well, you have the moment where Loring, Doctor Loring, and Doctor Nelson, where they're talking about the fact that Judy Nelson is pregnant now. She's fourteen weeks pregnant. Uh, and also, um, yeah, their third attempt. Yeah, it's the third attempt. They've lost two other children at around the same point in the in the pregnancy. Yeah. So it's, there's quite a, that's quite a heavy, serious moment that kind of comes out, out out of nowhere. Well, yeah, I would say. I mean, like, I mean, this is kind of a frankly stunning overshare and um, <laughs> a massive exposition bomb. But like, I didn't hate it the way it was presented. No, no, no. Um, no. And like, yeah, it's uh, again, you you kind of so it's, it's, gotta hear Ted's this. got a lot of shit going on. Ted does, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, we also find, and I quite like this as a touch that they're gonna go try and their kind of Spidey Sense way of tracking him down is by cutting about with a Geiger counter because he's radioactive. Yeah, he is radioactive. Enough to track, but not enough that it's uh, in any that way needs to dangerous. needs be contained, no. Um, um, and yeah, so at this point we get the the second head in the river shot and cuts back to the fisherman's head coming down a waterfall. And when the head hits the deck, a waterfall is really great. It's <laughs> amazing. It's really, really well done. Um, it just kind of busts open like a watermelon. Yeah, it's really good. It's great. Like I've, like, I've, like, I've I'm, I'm not even going to stop and poke fun at it. It's just a really good practical effect, and I'm not even going to say that it's gratuitous. That we've got two long shots of it. Um, but it, it pays. It pays off. It does exactly. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. If you if you watch the first one, you're like, "Fucking hell, we're watching this head for a long time," and then it cuts back to you like, "Oh, not this fucking head again." But then, and then it's rewarding. Like, yeah. One thing I've noticed from watching a couple of these films is um, how abruptly and how sore thumbing it is when it cuts immediately to ancillary characters you're never going to see again. Uh-huh. So this film, I will concede, yep. <laughs> introduces a lot of characters for no reason whatsoever. Uh, yeah, they're they're introduced not necessarily Im- to immediately die, but often to immediately die. Yeah. Um, and I think in a in a way that. I don't feel as like particularly like I don't think it serves a particular wider purpose. It kind of feels like the kind of thing that appears when your film comes out at seventy four minutes. 
<laughs> it reminds me of the start of the Return of Swamp thing, where you've got these two kind of irritating kid characters for no real reason apart from to crack wise while Swamp Thing fights a giant uh, leech monster. I know exactly. Uh, I, know, I know exactly what you mean. No, you don't. Do you? Of course, you I don't fucking don't. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, that's one for another day. We'll watch Return of Swamp Thing. But uh, yeah, we kind of we come on to. Uh, a scene of some children smoking. Yeah, this is really weird, I think. <laughs> yeah, it kind of takes me back to when Rob Morgan was on talking about Extra and we were talking about uh, those, <laughs> those kind of public service films from like the, the 70s. I do my own thing, mister. Yeah, I do my own thing, mister. Let's go down, let's go down the canal. Uh, uh, which they literally do. They, like, they go down by the waterfall. Yeah, they actually do say, it's like, let's play by the waterfall. Yeah. And other cautionary tales. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, we get we get so we get a fairly compacted uh, series of PSAs. One about the dangers of smoking when you're ten, and another one about playing down by the waterfall. And then, perhaps most significantly, the hazards of playing hide and seek by the waterfall. So Steve, at this point, is stumbling around somewhere. Around yeah, he's like maraud- marauding around um, somewhere in this vicinity, just dripping everywhere. And uh, the little girl puts her fingers in what is presumably highly radioactive gunge. Yeah, like I, um, it's like a handprint he's left on a tree, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. She's chosen to be it in hide and seek, and um, she starts to count, and she does it badly. She cheats, and it's something I used to do. And I used to play hide and seek when I was a wee guy. Oh, did you? He would go like one, two, three, four, five, six, eight, ten, twelve, fourteen, uh, fifteen, sixteen. 20, 58, and you just like, you'd be at 100 before there was, before anyone was really well hidden. Hide and seek is nothing um, without integrity, Andy Stewart. Uh, <laughs> 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 um, to everyone who I played hide and seek with in my youth, I apologise profusely. Um, yeah, the, the folly of youth. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> um, so the two smoking kids have acquired an- another one, a girl. Yeah. You start to play with them, and she's it, as you say. Um, so she goes um, to try and find them. She thinks she's found someone. She's right, just not who she expected. No, no, she uh, happens upon Steve uh, just as his eyeball drops out. That's an unfortunate piece of time. Yeah, it's bad timing. I mean, it's pretty horrific. And, uh, I mean, it's let's be honest, that's lifelong trauma right there. It's it's also it's, it's very, very funny when that happens. It's very funny, of course. Because like, Steve... She freaks out and Steve freaks out. He freaks out just as much. And I think it's the freak out on his part that causes his eyeball to drop out. Yeah. Um, and he kind of runs off and she runs off. She runs away screaming, runs home to her mum screaming that she's met Frankenstein in the woods. And I think that's actually quite a nice nod to the original Frankenstein where he kind of comes, a, where Karloff's Frankenstein happens upon the little girl by the side of the river mm-hmm. and chucks her in, kills her. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I... I as much as I, I feel that this, I'm a bit like, ugh, don't really need these kids. I like that moment in that scene. Yeah, at least it, yeah, it's well executed. I think if it does feel totally superfluous, but it's pretty well done. Um, I've got no particular problem with the sequence. I just yeah. question its worth. Feel bad for Steve at that moment when he and they're both scared by each other's presence and his eye drops. So. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So Ted is looking for him also in this. In this general area. Yeah, he's on the trail. Um. Uh, no, he's not dressed for it at all. That is very true. He's yeah. wearing a, like, a pair of trainers, some flares, and a, a hoodie with no t- t-shirt underneath it, and it's like halfway zipped. Yeah, it's a fucking baffling war- wardrobe choice, that was. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so he's on the trail, and you know that he's like he's not too far off, because he does, in a kind of fairly revolting moment, he finds uh, one of Steve's ears. It, what he's basically doing is following blobs of, <laughs> blobs of gunk. It doesn't even really, let's be honest, you don't really need the Geiger counter. 
No, not just really. I mean, like, observant. He's, yeah, he's, <laughs> yeah, just like follow the trail of, of what is getting or what are becoming increasingly large and increasingly slimy footprints. Yeah, puddles of Steve. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, the, the, Steve, the Stevie deposits. Yeah, just, <laughs> yeah, just follow the Stevie deposits. Just follow the Stevie deposits. Follow the discarded the the discarded body parts. Yeah. Um. But yeah, he does uh, track Steve, and the whole time he's shouting his own name. He's, he's like, it's me, Steve, it's Ted Nelson. It's me, it's Ted Nelson. It's your friend, Ted Nelson. This is a, I'm worried about you. He, Ted Nelson's concerned. Hearing, hearing the words, uh, the words Ted Nelson together out loud by any character would definitely be one for the drinking game in this film. Mm. Uh, oh my god! Uh, aye. Um, also, good name for a band. What, Ted Nelson? Yeah, I know you're into it. This is going to have to be one of what I feel might be a few instances where we agree to disagree, Andy Stewart. Oh, uh, okay. no, um, so yeah, Ted appears to be pretty hot on the trail, but for some reason packs in the trip to go and get the general, uh, to <laughs> yeah. go and pick him up from the airport or yeah, whatever. I mean, I think... Uh, Could have delegated that one, I think. Yeah, I, I feel like he's already hot on the trail, but he abandons the trail to go and pick up Agent... Uh, Agent? To go and pick up uh, general. general Perry, because General Perry's told him that no one else can be given this incredibly sensitive information that Steve West has escaped and he's killing people. Yeah. So it, it's kind of counterproductive that he's out there in the first place. That's, that's true, I agree. So he goes to, once he's got the general, they go back and they inspect the body of the fisherman, which, which has been found by <laughs> an aspiring model and ext- an extremely sleazy photographer. This is a scene that hasn't aged particularly well. This is a scene that's aged terrifically. But, there, yeah. Um, yeah. but yeah, I mean like, I'm going to just uh, let you let you go on with this scene. <laughs> this scene. I mean, um, yeah, there's not too much to say. There's not much I can say to defend. No, and I think, and I, but I think also it's just one of those things. It's kind of, it's a kind of like fairly ugly, gratuitous product of its time. Yeah, and, and the, I think in that, these like, days of me too. Yeah, um, I feel like yeah, this scene. Yeah, not the not the greatest. Yeah, I feel like it like it it, it can't be prescient when it's that gratuitous. <laughs> No, that's, um, that's, that's, but that's true. Moving swiftly on. Um, <laughs> in the, in that exchange, they stumble across the body of the fisherman. Ted inspects this with uh, he, uh, kind of alongside the sheriff, sheriff, the sheriff, sheriff Neil Blake. Blake. Neil Blake. Yeah. Um, so I think that uh, again, this this is kind of kind of liken it to the bit in Rawhead Rex, which we covered in episode four, when uh, the guy turns up to the trashed kitchen. Uh, that has kind of been done by a twelve foot demonic hell beast, and concludes that it was a revenge killing. Yeah. Um, so it's not that's not the same because obviously Ted is covering his tracks by by positing that the decapitated like man that we find is has been attacked by a wild animal. <laughs> well, um, no, the, the sheriff says to him first, he's like, uh, perhaps you can help us kind of figure out what happened over here. And they take Ted over to where that for the sleazy photographer guy is still hopping around trying to take photos, and they pull the sheet back, and the guy has like no head. His torso is completely, it, completely yeah. hollowed out. Like it's, and he, Ted's a doctor, so I mean, what he was killed by death. What I think is funny is that Ted, I think, under the circumstances, in what is, I mean, he he knows what's going on. Ted's not a stupid he knows, guy. No, you know, no, he knows far from it. But obviously, it's classified information. He's got to play the game a little bit. So Ted concludes aloud, at least, this is the work of a wild animal. True. Which yeah. I think. Perfectly reasonable. Like, it's a good cover story. I like it. The sheriff is, like, immediately suspicious of this as though he was decapitated by a radioactive humanoid. It's a way more plausible explanation. Yeah. He's just like, he's like when, he's just, when, he's, when he's just like, oh, this was obviously, like, he got attacked by a beast because yeah. his head's been removed. Uh-huh. And you, you just see, like, sh- the sheriff, like, side-eyeing and being like, yeah, okay. But the sheriff actually sa- the, the sheriff actually says, and I've watched this film a lot, so I know the sheriff actually goes, what do you know, Doc? Yeah, it was unbelievable, <laughs> just an unbelievable leap. 
And, uh, and, and Nelson's like, nothing. And then the, the sheriff just comes back with, yeah, I thought not. Yeah, which doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah, It makes perfect sense. Um, so, yeah, so that's what you get. And then you kind of get... So we cut to Steve marauding around in slow motion um, in a very well shot scene. I, I love think. that sunset stuff with yeah. Steve kind of silhouetted against kind of against this orange sky. Yeah, with um, um, flashbacks to his yeah, you can, astronaut glory days playing on the soundtrack. His, his glory days were about a day ago. It's true, like, yeah. Pretty up, fresh until, up until one day previously to this, perhaps, he was still an astronaut. Yes, Arguably so, still an astronaut, although yeah, uh, like, perhaps the the, the kind of uh, the structural integrity of his body um, rules him out of that now. But I think like, um, and this is kind of this kind of points to one of the problems that I have, right? So what you get here, like I say, it's a very well shot sequence, very well put together. See you getting the kind of flashbacks to simpler times, better times. I feel like you getting an understanding that he is sad that he's now a monster and no longer an astronaut is about as much as you learn about him in his previous form in all <laughs> film. And I think that one of my problems with the film is how little we know about Steve. I right. because okay. I can't because I can't get a foothold on to what extent he's a monster and to what extent he's a human and knowing so little about what he was like before I think makes it difficult to engage with him as a character. Okay, well, that I think that I would say is a reasonable concern. Yeah. Of yours, okay. and, a, and a reasonable critique. Okay. Um, of the Incredible Melton Man. Um, the book that I have here in front of me on the table, oh, yeah, which you, you might be able to see just now, is Phil Smith 1978 novelization of the Incredible Melton Man. Not a film that perhaps you would expect to have a novelization. So the book came after? The book came one year after. Obviously, it's okay. like uh, one of those kind of tie-ins. Yeah. Um, the story's slightly different. Okay, and what... Uh, uh, tell me. In so much as there's a more a more of a kind of a sentience to what, what causes Steve's condition. But uh, you don't really learn any more about Steve. Whose perspective is it written from? Is it just it's like written kind of... Yeah, so you, get, you have Steve's perspective, you have uh, Ted Nelson's perspective. But a lot of Steve's is much more in depth in the mission. Okay. Um. So you kind of learn more about um what causes this. It's set on Mars instead of Saturn, which right. makes slightly more sense. Um. Certainly in distance terms. Ah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but uh. Yeah. You don't actually learn much more about Steve as a person in that. See, that feels like a shame to me. But I think that had that even just that, even if you'd like you'd seen a little bit more of that, just to get more of a read on what he was actually like. Yeah. I think would have done. I mean, I don't like. I don't. I don't need to know like what inspired him to become an astronaut or anything like that. <laughs> Just more of a read of what he was like as a person. I think would have been interesting. But anyway, yeah, um, it could have been a cunt. <laughs> it might have been. Like, this is the thing. It, this could have been deserved. Yeah, I don't know what the stakes are. Do I yeah, care about this, this guy or not? Be, this could have been an absolutely deserved end for Ex- Steve. Exactly, and I think I would quite like to have had more of an idea of that, or more of an opportunity to at least form an opinion on the guy. So, after this, uh, Ted Nelson, uh, who I'm just going to refer to by his I think name. that's fair. He, 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 that's what he would want. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, that's uh, what he would demand. Ted Nelson, General Perry, Dr. Loring reassemble at base, mm-hmm. and Ted Nelson calls home and talks to Judy. Judy. Um, yeah. It's who, worth noting, by the way, at this point, that Ted Nelson does a lot of dashing back and forth. An awful lot of dashing back and forth. Yeah. he's, he's To a, the detriment, perhaps, of his search for his friend. I agree. Just to the to, to the detriment in general of just getting things done. I think like um, but he calls home. He talks to GD, who invites all of them to dinner. Uh, Doctor Loring declines. He just wants to go home and sleep. Uh, General Perry's up for it. Doctor Loring's not going home to sleep. No. Doctor Loring's super cool. He's just sitting there being like, "This isn't even my whole night." Yeah. He had yeah, somewhere else yeah, to be. Yeah. He's got better plans than sitting with 
General Perry. I know Fuddy Duddy like General Perry. Yeah, um, so uh, Dr. Loring declines going for dinner. Uh, General Perry is quite up for it. At this point, <laughs> uh, Judy mentions that her mother and her friend, air quotes Harold, are also coming. So, again, some kind of unnecessary ancillary characters, but... I'm preparing myself for this scene. I feel like you might have something of an issue with this scene. I am... Well, honestly, I think that, like, of all of the, like... I don't want to say pointless, because obviously, you know, there's a family connection in there. Uh But I think of all the characters who aren't kind of serving the main narrative drive, they're probably my favourites. All right, okay. Um, Have you seen um, Wes Craven's Last House on the Left? Ah, yes. Uh, You know the cops in Last House on the Left that they kind of go around with, like, a kind of circus score behind them all the time? Uh Uh, and they're just generally a bit shy, and you kind of question why they're there at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like these are very similar characters. I thought you were going to be like, that was Helen. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> no, Okay, yeah, no, I agree. But, Helen um, and Harold. Helen and Harold, who are uh, in the car on their way to uh, Judy and Ted Nelson's house. Yeah, they're definitely a couple, right? A hundred percent. Geriatric yeah. genital bashers. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Uh, 100%. Uh, yeah, like, um, Helen is all over Harold in the yeah, car. Yeah, and he, like, Harold he's, is, he's trying to drive. Yeah, he he's keeps a, telling him. Yeah, not while I'm driving. He's eyes on the road. Uh, he's a <laughs> safety first kind of guy, uh, which I admire. Uh, none, of your, none of your head in the lap scenario for Harold. No, no, no. No, he's, no. None of that. No way. But yeah, yeah, he is older. He probably does need to pay a little bit more attention. And it's worth mentioning that they are quite, quite old. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I think geriatric is not far off the mark. Yeah. Uh, or octogenarian is not far off the mark. Yeah, even, yeah. Yeah, so if, yeah, Harold is a safety-conscious guy. If he's going to die in this film, which he inevitably will, it's not going to be because of some I-know-what-you-did-last-summer-style motoring carelessness, vehicular negligence. Sure, like, sure. Because like, yeah. that's, that's not happening. Yeah. Um, there's one thing he's not... As a bad driver. Absolutely not, whatever else. But they're talking about kind of getting something as a token of their appreciation for uh, Ted Nelson and Judy's hospitality. Well, it's not just that. Remember, they're running significantly late. Also true. Yep. So they're wanting to get a token to, one, to, to kind of thank Ted and Judy for inviting them over, and two, to apologise for their lateness, their tardiness. So Helen concludes that the best thing to get them for this, she spots what she thinks is an orange grove, and uh, concludes that the best gesture for this would be oranges that they didn't pay for. <laughs> Rather than a lovely gift. Yeah, just like pulling into, just fucking steal some stuff. Pulling into the hard yeah. shoulder and stealing some oranges yeah. is uh, is her solution. We stole another car. Like, there you go. Like, <laughs> it's just so she's a klepto and just a bit of a sex pest. Yeah, obviously she's always um, things. Yeah, I've got a lot of time for him. <laughs> <laughs> but then um, there's a there's a protracted conversation where they kind of split hairs about what kind of citrus fruits uh, this grove actually holds. Yeah, that does, uh, um, and while this is going on, like Steve. Again, right. is lurking and watching, and he I, loves a lurk. Yeah, he fucking I, I, loves a lurk. At this man. point, I am stopping loving Steve's lurking. This uh, isn't even as bad as it gets. No, that's true. I again concede that Steve's lurking in a scene that comes up fairly quickly after this goes to a whole other level. Aye, it goes to um, eleven, and Steve really, really lurks quite heavily. But what we do get while Steve is lurking here is um, another kind of hint that he's at another more advanced stage of decomposition. His jaw is visible at this point. Yeah, but then you've got a, a bit more of a, an insight into Steve the man here. What, um, that he's a voyeur? 
No, he he. There's a moment just when he's looking at himself in the top of a barrel, like in the water on the top of a barrel, uh-huh. as kind of parts of his face fall into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and he obviously is completely horrified by his own appearance. Yeah. And has this kind of emotional outburst where he's kind of wailing and kind of slapping at the water and stuff. So you do get a bit more. Obviously, the guy's well past the point of any kind of speech. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I, my, I, my, I do you feel I'm stretching? I think, here? I, th- I think that catching your first look at your advanced melty face and freaking out about it is kind of something that everyone would do. Although I get you, uh, you could get the, imp- you, I guess you could make the argument, and it's a leap. I think that uh, he is more of a heart on his heart on his sleeve kind of guy because you could have seen him, <laughs> you could have seen him do that and be kind of stoic about it. Yeah, that's true. So you could you could say that he's kind of like yeah, he's kind of an emotional guy, I guess. Is the closest I would say that I could get to drawing apart like to making a connection to what it was like. But these brief the moments of humanity um, are undone pretty quickly by his next actions. Well, I mean, it's kind of it's 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 by implication, but not really. So um, basically, Helen and Harold are in the middle of their uh, fruit theft, their heist. Yeah, their heist, if you like, <laughs> like that. Yeah. And then they're startled by a noise and double back on themselves and the plan in double quick time. Yeah, Helen is a shitbag. She she shits. She goes, "I'm really scared. Let's go." Yeah, she like goads um, Harold for ages into coming and helping her steal oranges. And the first the first hint of trouble, she's like, "Let's go." This back to the is car. a perfect horror scene, though. Two idiots out where they shouldn't be, making an insane decision to do something silly. You have a a red herring in the form of the the Doberman that comes at them. Oh yeah. And then they get back into their car, and the killer's in their car. Yeah, that's, that's true. That's a perfect horror scene. It's not bad. When you see when you said two idiots being out where they shouldn't be and making a stupid decision, you know what came to mind? What? The exhuming the corpse nightmare sequence from Friday the 13th Part 5. <laughs> Episode 1 callback. But uh, yeah, yeah, they, um, they get back into the car. And uh, Steve's obviously he's in the back seat. So we're back at the house and Again, uh, back at the house. But yeah, like yeah, I feel like we zigzag as much as Ted Nelson does. But uh, we're back at the house and Ted is uh, kind of having Ted Nelson is having this conversation with Judy mm-hmm. about everything that's going on and about Steve and yeah. things. And what he doesn't realize is that General Perry, who had previously gone for a nap, which is not yeah. something I would do if I was a guest. In I wouldn't house. go to a stranger's house. Well, not. Well, I wouldn't go to. Was he a colleague? What, I mean, no, yeah, a colleague. Size, I would say. In yeah. fact, it's a good point. It's not even like it's not even like if you came around to mine. Yeah, and you were but, like, but I'm, I'm knackered. Your, I'm your friend. You, yeah, you would probably just be like, oh, well, okay, I'll just leave him to it. Yeah, yeah, but exactly. Like, I would if your like, boss oh, no. came to your fucking house, like if your boss came to your house and said, ah, oh, thanks for that turkey. That was delicious. I'm really fucking tired. I'm going for a nap. You'd be like, oh, weird. Right. Uh, okay. Aye. No, it's it's the kind of thing I would 100% be totally okay with my pals doing. Because, I mean, I think that their entire, all of their exchanges up to this point have this very formal air. Well, yeah. So it's a weird thing that he's gone for a nap. But either way, he's woken up and he's overheard this and he goes a bit mental at, at Ted for uh, divulging, gi- divulging this. Yeah. yeah. And um, I was expecting this to be a heated exchange between uh, Perry and uh, Ted. But right. in the end, it's Judy that really loses it here with like very little provocation. She goes mental about the fact that they haven't found him. And she's basically like, get yourselves out there and don't come back. Yeah, so she's obviously got a relationship with Steve. Yeah, that's fair. She must do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before she's getting this kind of, uh, this impassioned. So Perry and Ted head out and Judy is alone at this point. It's worth noting as well, though, at this point that Judy's pretty much convinced that her mum's dead. Oh yeah, that's already happened. Some kind of psychic, uh, some kind of psychic mind meld or something. Yeah, Helen and Harold are late, but she's like, yeah, she's like, I just know it. Yeah, she's definitely dead. Anyway, moving on. (laughs) Yeah. Um, 
so while Judy's alone in the house, it's got a good another and like I say about red herrings and things. There's another like a, a pretty well executed scene here where she goes to investigate a noise, and there's a kind of good double fake out, uh, double fake out scare thing there. Yeah, with where, uh, Elsie the cat. Elsie the cat has uh, broken a bottle of milk, which is the noise, and then there's a hand on her shoulder, and it turns out to be a well, returning you see the shadow to... in the background. Yeah, and, um, and oh, uh, while all this is going on, who's outside lurking? Oh, it's oh, fucking slippery Steve. Steve, the incredible lurking man. <laughs> Um, <laughs> old slimy Steve but see um, but the hand on his shoulder and obviously I think it's going to be Steve and it's what it's Ted back during one of his trademark zigzags um, I'm going to say this again another perfect horror scene another good horror oh, scene oh fuck up <laughs> <laughs> Ted strikes me as a bit of a local hero go on everybody knows him the policeman knows him knows everything about him uh, and just generally wants to be it seems like the policeman just wants to be around him yeah, that's fair. Like, like Blake just wants to be pals with him. Like he wants to just be around Nelson. I can kind of understand it in a way. I kind of feel like Sheriff Blake wants to just kind of be caught in the gravitational pool of Ted's kind of He's presence, obviously got you know? some gravitas got, or something. Man. He's got some cachet somewhere. Yeah, you can tell because, um, yeah, I would say that's fair. I, th- I think that the Sheriff's kind of... I don't think he'd be particularly overt about it if you can tell he's got quite a lot of admiration there. I think mm-hmm. that's fair. I would say that like Ted's a, a figure of note. <laughs> In the area. Yeah, I mean, I don't know much about this town at all. Uh, no, none of us do. Or this area, this locale. Yeah. None of it. But certainly that he carries some gra- some kind of weight to his persona. Yeah, I know, I completely agree. And I think that, like, so there's, I mean, I've, I know I've kind of, I've, I, I, I've got occasional issues with the performance here, but I think mm. that. That's fair. When he's doing some of the That's kind fair. of. And I think that generally my issues with the performance come when it has to go to extremes. And when he's doing the kind of level-headed stuff, like when you see him interacting in the kind of with the more bureaucratic stuff, kind of thing, I can kind of, I can understand why he had a solid career as a TV actor. Who's your MVP? Oh God, that's a really <laughs> Rick good qu- Baker. <laughs> that's a really good question, actually. Who is the MVP in this? Who's yours? Helen. <laughs> Helen's really funny, actually. Yeah. Like uh, uh, Helen, Helen. Actually, probably, if I'm perfectly honest, it probably is Ted Nelson. Um, Purely as the kind of the, the kind of anchor, the rock of the whole thing. Ah, the Stacy Keach. The Stacy Keach. There you go. Yeah, the backbone. Yeah, yeah. It kind of keeps it all keeps it all together. I I hear that. I would. Yeah, I guess of the main characters because considering that you're kind of your other main character is this kind of shambling, deformed. It's jelly. Yeah. Uh, who obviously kind of like can't imprint too much uh, performance-wise on it. Really. Well, the th- that's the th- I think that's the thing that kind of. And I'll say this now, um, as a spe- a card carrying special effects fan, I love that all the effects are practical in this, but I wish mm-hmm. that the melting Steve face was less of a mask and there was more of Alex Rebar in there. Yeah, I would and, say that's fair. The slight, I mean, he has the one good eye, which is hidden a lot of times in darkness, even on the Arrow video Blu-ray um, that we watched. Mm-hmm. While it's a, an amazing, amazing transfer, you see his good eye so infrequently. Yeah. Um, I think if you saw his eye more often, it might help kind of pull you back into state, like with the, your concern with Steve maybe not having a lot of character. Like humanising him a lot. Yeah, if you could see more of the emotion in the in the eye or wider in the face, if they if they were able to do that, I know there was um, I know that Rick Baker had a lot more effects that he wanted to do and a lot more things that he'd built, but um, Alex Rebar refused to wear them. Well, seriously. <laughs> so uh, that's a shame. I guess you've got that what could have been question. I d- I do kind of agree with you. I think that. Um... And you could be onto something there. I think that 
the further on, like the further down the rabbit hole we go with his kind of decomposition, the more that that becomes a problem, and the more that it kind of that it's visibly a mask becomes an issue. And I think that yeah, had there been more of him in there, I think that for one thing, it would have looked cooler. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with how it looks, really. But I think it would have looked cooler, and I think that, yeah, like you say, I think seeing a little bit more of him might have given him a little bit more of an emotional range. But saying that, when I made my film Split, which it was kind of, in a way, my homage to this... We'll be um, we'll be posting that up for anyone that hasn't seen Split. Yeah. We'll be posting it up on all the channels. It's kind of my homage to this and a bit of the fly on a ridiculously small budget. Um, but I, I, I really wanted, actually, the final stage of my character's transformation in Split to look a lot more like the end of The Incredible Milton Man. Mm-hmm. And then when I spoke to the, when me and my, the special the special effects designer were sitting down and talking about it, we decided actually no, we'll pull it back a bit so that he still has a bit of personality, um, and you can still get more of a performance in the face. And I think it does help. And that's a big criticism I've always had with the film, as much as I love it. Mm-hmm. It's I just wish there was more of Alex Rebar on show. Yeah, I would say that's fair. Just in terms, just in terms of performance, and yeah, you can talk whatever, but at least they'd be able to get across. He'd be able to emote a little bit. Yeah, we're trying to give him the opportunity to. Yeah, because you really like because I because I know nothing about him as an actor either off the back of this really. I don't think I really do. No, I think it would have been a, it would have been a good window to do that. But anyway, so Ted heads out again, and she's just now as we're running through the kind of the thing of him coming <laughs> in and out of the house. The uh, only reason that he came back is for that double fake out jump scare. Yeah, and to drop off General and, Perry, and to drop off General because he leaves General Perry behind again. Um, it's a, with a turkey dinner. Yes, because Steve gets the call about because the sheriff finds the remains of Harold and Helen. Yeah, that's and he yeah. calls uh, when everyone is back in the house. And uh, incidentally, like a fairly hard going moment for uh, for Ted because he takes the call and he knows. Yeah, that the two bodies they found, he knows who they are. But he tells, he just says there's been an accident, which is probably kind of him trying to spare her a little bit of trauma. I don't think Judy's stupid enough to believe that. If I'm perfectly honest, Judy strikes me as quite switched on. Yeah, I think um, she knows that there's a, a, a certainly an issue with people falling dead at the hands of the incredible Milton man. Yeah, we could we could call it his attempt to kind of spare her some. Yeah, um, because, maybe because as well she's friends with Steve. Yeah, also true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Quite a lot going on. Quite a lot of stakes there. So when Ted goes back into the crime scene, uh, I think that like his calling card almost at this point is divulging classified information. Or to everyone, because he does it again. He tells uh, Sheriff Blake, he says, look, right, I'll tell you, but you can't tell anyone, not even your wife. And yeah. Blake goes, that's cool, I'm not married. Yeah. <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. How the fuck am I going to tell? I've got nobody. I go home and drink. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, like a little peek behind the curtain. I, in fact, I feel like I know more about Blake than I do about Steve as a character. I think got, you like, do, yeah. yeah. like as kind of a little insight into how sad Well, I think what you can surmise for sure about Steve is that he's got a long and storied career in the military. Yep presumably as a pilot at some point uh, yeah to become maybe a captain in the space program astro yeah. plan I don't see know what, this is. is what I'm talking about this is what I'm talking about I'm, I'm not a space guy no um, so uh, and while this is going on meanwhile back at the ranch Perry inexplicably opens the door Steve and gets bitten in the face yeah uh, Steve of course has been lurking out there for what feels like several days it's a um, lovely big chunk of his cheek yeah he does um, so Steve's that's... been out there for a long fucking time yeah He's been hovering. Also worth mentioning that earlier we missed the fakest graveyard that you've ever seen in your life. Also true, yeah. But like just like, yeah, we <laughs> oh, shot him shambling so through it. So fucking bad. Um, but yes. Uh, the next scene definitely calls for Claudette. Hello, Claudette. Hello. <laughs> How's things? What are these characters doing here? 
Ah, well, good question. Good yeah. question, Claudette. What I will say about this scene is we're introduced to Matt and Nell Winters. Mm-hmm. Both of them, pretty good pedigree within the genre. Go on. Um, so Nell, uh, so that's Janice Blythe, who was in The Hills of Eyes. She played Ruby in The Hills of Eyes. She okay. was also in things like Drive-In Massacre and Toby Hooper's Eating Alive or Death Trap, whichever, whichever side of the water you're on. Right. Um, and Matt is played by Oscar-winning director of Silence of the Lambs, Jonathan Demme. Which is really cool. Yeah, uh, doing, a, doing a cameo for a friend, which I think's uh, not <laughs> fucking amazing. Yeah, yeah, really cool when you see stuff like that happening, I think. But yeah, they're basically, they're just they're just a couple. Who... Yeah, they're just a couple but... coming home to their house. And uh, yeah, Matt goes to open the door and we get the familiar uh, pussy, ready, gungy... Stevie Deposit. Steve, Stevie Deposit, yep. Uh, yeah, and he, he runs in like a hero. Can I do it? Yeah. Um, lamb of the slaughter. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he's dispatched pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, I'm um, uh, sadly I, off camera. Yeah, I, I feel like I could have done with a couple more on camera deaths. And mm-hmm. I think that um, this its commitment to practical effects with Steve is so resolute that I feel like well, it's essential. <laughs> The film's called The Incredible Man. Absolutely, yeah. But I think that, like, it's weird then, I think, that so many of the deaths kind of feel like pulled punches a little bit. Right, okay. Or a couple of them do. And I would say that, yeah, um, when we lose him here, this entire thing, in fact, to be honest, this entire scene feels a little bit... This is the most egregious case of padding that there is in here, I think. You think? I think so, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Because, like, because the chase Go sequence, on. the chase sequence with Nell afterwards, also in the house, mm-hmm. where she barricades the door for a bit with the the fridge, the fridge, and then kind of hides in the corner and stuff like that. Obviously, you're getting that I had my share of problems and things that I liked about this film. Okay. And at this point, I don't feel like the film's like staying its welcome, but I feel like this is. Okay. When she's like barricading the door and like sitting screaming in the corner and stuff, I'm like, well, ah, that's okay. after. So that's after. Kind of Steve's done the uh, the syrupy hand of doom, kind of trying to get her, and she lops it off with a cleaver. She lops his, his arm off. Which is a cool twitching hand effect on the floor there. Yeah, that is a good moment. I'll and give you that. then I will again concede that the moment where Nell sits down and screams for a protracted period of time it does feel long. Could perhaps be truncated slightly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'll get. I'll give you that. Yeah, I think that. Of the kind of stuff that I think could have been left on the cutting room floor, I would say that this feels the least forgivable. Yeah, okay. uh, is, Fair ha- is how I would kind of characterize that. Kind of going back to going back to the story here. Nell has by this point called the cops. Yes, because well, for for obvious obvious reasons, and I don't actually recall her saying anything. I think she just kind of discards the phone and screams and chops Steve's arm off, and then screams a bit more. Yeah. Um. However, the call comes through to Sheriff Blake. <laughs> this 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 is one of my favorite moments in it. Right. Um, okay. See when when like is like you say for one thing she just screamed incoherently into the phone and then the uh the operator these people are trained to decipher that yeah. Mitch she really she relays this in incredibly specific fashion, um, which sheriff the sheriff basically ignores. See because he's like oh we've just had a call from Nell Winters um uh-huh. her boyfriend or whatever's been. Murdered, and there's a guy in the loose, and genuinely at that point, the sheriff's like, "No need to listen, to, no need to listen to the rest of this. I'm on my way." Yeah. And like, then bl- blunders head on into danger, which he could have avoided if he'd listened to the rest of the transmission. Yeah, yeah, but, but I mean, that, that, he, he he's an impulsive guy. He doesn't. He, is, he certainly is an impulsive guy. He's fiery, uh, but he doesn't come <laughs> to any harm at this particular point. Yeah, they they go and they they barge into Nell's house and they see that 
I think Ted Nelson at this point says, I think Steve is gone. Like, mm. um, I think what we know is Steve is gone. Yeah. But then we get a really... Yeah, like spiritually, Steve has left the building. Yeah. And um, what we get after this is a scene that I really, really like. There's a bit where um, we kind of see some bums, some kind of hobo guys drinking down by the, the railway tracks. Oh, I think I know what you're going to say here, but yeah. And uh, they're kind of swigging away at their whiskey. And again, there's some kind of throwaway dialogue. And they see, like, they see Steve approaching along the railway tracks above them. Yeah, and they say something like, "You fake, you're a life's badge. You could be look at you could be that guy," and uh, you see a really nice shot of it, like them down in the foreground with the fire and Steve up on the bridge, kind of yeah. walking by. I, um, I always thought it's quite nice and quite sad. I'd make the contention that that's the best shot in the film. Oh right, okay. I yeah. think mm-hmm. um, that or the sunset thing that we spoke about earlier. But I would. Just, you're not spoiled for a great moment of cinematography in it. There are, there are a couple. Yeah, you're not, you know, but you're not spoiled for them. No, definitely not. It's not like uh, it's not like the most recent Blade Runner film. I, it's, it's, yeah. it's, 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 it's not like Grand Budapest, but yeah, like, you're uh, not, you're but not blown no. away by the by the, the the footage on show. But see, with things like this though, where like you say, you know, you don't have your troubles to seek with the film in a couple of ways. But I think that I almost value it more when you see those moments of proper artistic merit coming through mm-hmm. and stuff. And I I think that when you're watching something that you know objectively probably isn't that great i like being surprised by moments like that yeah and i think that the moment when he's kind of the the sunset stuff the Mm -hmm. flashback stuff is fine i like that it's a little on the nose for me i think with the kind of with the space (laughs) flashbacks on you know whereas i think that this is kind of like it's kind of it's very understated but it's also it's a great looking shot and it it doesn't and it kind of it gives it a little bit it gives it a little bit of airtime as well you know you get a minute to look at it yeah and i like that I didn't realise how much I liked that shot until I started talking about it, actually. There you go. So there you go. Uh, but anyway, we are moving at a clip, as this film does, to be fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There might be some padding in there, as you've uh, as you've uh, posited, but I don't think uh, it slows the film down, really. The film moves fast as fuck. Yeah. Right? I mean, like I said, I'm not going to say that there's no waste in there, but I also, no, don't, no, I, but, I, but I also don't feel like... It's outstayed its welcome by the time you get to your kind of final showdown. Yeah, you're not rolling your eyes like, oh, hurry up and fucking end. In fact, quite the opposite. When we got to that point, I actually asked you, I was like, is this, are we are we at the end bit now? And it felt like it had kind of raced around to that quite quickly. And um, so the standoff, the kind of final standoff that you get is between Sheriff Blake and uh, Ted Nelson versus Steve. Yeah, in a factory. Yes. Now let me throw back to Chris Alexander and Blackula. Episode 11. We, yep. In which we... Sp- we had a discussion supposing that it might be the same factory. Yeah, I'm still not sure. I'm still not sure. I think there's a strong possibility that it's the same factory. When, when, when you said it and I looked at it, I was like, no. And then the more that you see of it... The, the deeper you move into the bowels yeah, of and the, the more, factory. And, the, and the more you see the way that they use the space... And so if I was like, oh, you could be on to something there, actually. <laughs> it's one of those things where I kind of feel like we have to find out. If anyone has the answer to that, I know William Sachs is on Twitter and Instagram and stuff. If he happens upon this, then please let us know if you know that this was the same factory that was in Blackula. Let's tweet him and ask him. Let's do that. Yeah, we're doing it. We're doing it. But first things first. Yeah. I, I think it's worth mentioning. I think this whole film must take place in about 48 hours. Oh, the time span of the narrative? Yeah, it's got to be. 20, yeah. 40, 48 hours. But yeah, it's pretty compact. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, the way it's framed, you've got no reason to believe I would say 36 hours. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, is my okay. estimate, I would say, for how long it's taken. And I think, I, I think that's a cool thing. Okay. It's like, I, I, and also, I quite like the fact that 
I mean, it feels a little bit narratively serendipitous that all of it would happen within a three mile radius. But like, but it's also I quite like the fact that it's that despite the fact that it's kind of feels like this kind of fairly large scale kind of almost creature feature thing that its storytelling is actually quite insular. <laughs> Yeah, which I think is quite, which I, which I think is quite cool. Yeah, but anyway, the ending, the final scene, because there's quite oh, a lot yeah. of stuff going on here. Well, yeah, not the final scene, heaps. but like the kind yeah. of like your denouement, if you like. Yeah, uh, this is Steve's last stand. It is Steve's last stand. Yeah, he takes off into this, um, into this factory. He knows um, that that uh, Nelson and and Blake are coming for him, and he basically is just trying to buy himself some time. And he heads off into the kind of bowels of this factory, and they're giving him, cha- they're giving chase, giving chase, and um, he does, find- he does quite well here with like concealing himself and things. Yeah, there's one point where he's just like kind of ducked down underneath them, kind of peering up at them, and they're kind of bumbling around. Yeah, I quite enjoyed that. Um, and then Blake enlists the help of two Keystone Cop kind of bumbling, hod it and dod it type characters. Yeah, they come shambling in. Yeah, uh, ridiculous. Um, and um, the action kind of moves to the to the the roof. If you like, yeah, the kind of and a kind of like a connecting kind of stairwell, kind of where Blackula dies. Uh, yeah, the almost. exact bit in that factory where Blackula dies. <laughs> this is a action packed area. This factory, I guess, in a kind of last ditch attempt to kind of reason with his friend, um, Ted is kind of bargaining with with Steve, trying to kind of pull out those last kind of shards of hum- uh, humanity from him. Mm-hmm. But Blake's having none of that. See, but and just before we jump to this, because I know what you're getting to. So I was talking about earlier about us not knowing enough about Steve, uh, Steve which mm-hmm. I still think is true. But you do get an int- like I do like one thing, which is obviously you kind of when Ted's starting to reason with him to begin with, mm-hmm. and he kind of and Steve kind of motions to like throw him over the railing. Oh yeah, and you've got this bit where kind of like and it's a bit silly when Ted's kind of like hanging from the ledge with one hand, and he's like, "Oh, Steve, I'm falling. You have to help me." Kind Steve, of thing. I'm Ted Nelson. I'm Ted Nelson, Steve. Steve, it's Steve. me. I'm Ted Nelson. Steve, it's Steve, me. Ted. help me. I'm Ted Nelson. Steve, Ted Nelson. Don't is... let, don't <laughs> let Ted Nelson die. Ted Nelson's falling. Steve, help Ted Nelson. I, Steve, but but then he does. He does. He, he gives him a well. hand up. Uh, and I mean, I don't like. Well, before he does do that, he gets shot a couple of times by Blake, and then. And what is an astonishingly strong death? Uh, Steve throws Blake over a railing onto some electrical wires. Yeah, that is amazing. And basically, he is electrocuted. The corpse falls to the ground. The corpse is spewing out smoke and it's, sparks, and the, the corpse goes on fire. Like, it's, it's a really strong and pretty horrific death. It's probably the best one in there. In fact, it is the best one in there, I think. Yes, yeah, so, but like I say, he gives him a hand up, yeah. which I think is. Like I say, it doesn't really give you an insight to him as a character before, but it does show that there's some... Humanity like, left. Yeah, like, yeah. maybe Steve isn't gone. Maybe there's some part of him, maybe he's not beyond... Well, he's, I'd say he's pretty much beyond redemption. Yeah, but he's capable uh, of, obviously, capable of a little bit of compassion, which I think which I think is interesting. And all then, the best monsters are. I completely agree, yeah. Um, so, <laughs> Ted tries to kind of stop the uh, the kind of Keystone Cop characters... Yeah, they come bumbling up the ...from stairs. opening fire. Now, uh, this this is, like, staggering stuff when the when the police manage to shoot ted nelson but somehow repeatedly miss steve they shoot ted nelson in the face yeah he's dead he dies and uh a hero dies i'm quite happy to admit that was an unexpected death for me pretty th- quite startling stark as well because it's it's never really referenced again the only time you see it again is in the morning and it's just ted's corpse like yeah. it's there's no there's no lingering moment. And there's of, a real deta- de- there's a real deta- de- detachment from it. Yeah, there's no moment I kind of thought for Ted and, or thought for Judy at home with the baby. Um, Doesn't linger on it at all. There's no thought of any of that. It's a very stark, cold death, which is kind of cool. I, I think. Yeah, yeah, I really like it. And then it kind of 
But absolutely well, hilarious how the police, like, between, yeah. the, between the two of them, can't land a single bullet. Oh, yeah. no. And uh, the whole thing kind of comes to an end with Steve walking slowly towards camera, towards the two police officers, and then kind of taking us to a, a fade to black, really. Yeah. Um, as he mauls them, as we see, I guess, in the next scene. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's such a great ending. It's, it's fucking amazing. And, of course, like, it's not over yet. So after we cut to black, what's left but for Steve to, to die... He's got nothing nothing left to do, nothing left to offer, nothing left to give. And he plods off and sits down and in a staggering display of effects, given the budget, melts away. Yeah, which um, is again yeah, you're right, tremendously well done. Also yeah. we bit of a parallel between that and the death of Blackula. Perhaps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Apart um, from the fact that it's possibly in the same factory. Anyway. And I would also say this is ten times better realised. <laughs> Yeah, I would agree with that as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah, it's super gloopy. He loses his other eye. But yeah, he just um, essentially melts away into a puddle. It's really well done. It's also quite sad considering it's so gross. But the whole thing is quite sad. The whole story, I think, should be treated as a tragedy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He never, he never asked for this. He never asked to be this creature. Yeah. Yeah, I think you could have maybe done with a little bit more soul searching and Steve analysing his actions and why he was doing this stuff. Uh-huh. But if, uh, as Nelson says earlier, his brain is completely decomposed... He actually says that his mind is decomposed. his mind is decomposed, <laughs> then, yeah, maybe it makes perfect sense. Yeah, perhaps, yeah. Um, but the morning after stuff that you get is the kind the of end, absolute the, ending. I think it's brilliant. I think the ending is super cool. It's kind of a two-part ending. One part a joke and one part a kind of cool, sinister twist. Go on. The next morning is kind of played out with this janitor walking around the factory. We see the corpses of Ted and the cop and the, the other two idiots. And um, the janitor happens upon the pile of mush that used to be Steve. Steve presumably doesn't realise that that's what it is. Mm-hmm. And starts to uh, pretty unceremoniously scoop Steve's remains into a bucket. Yep. <laughs> Which I think great. lovely and sad and just so dehumanising yep. to his remains. There's this kind of weird radio broadcast thing playing over it yeah the janitor's got like he's walking around with a radio isn't he? oh yeah yeah, yeah. and um, what you have is you're hearing about Scorpio 7 yes um, I don't know what happened to Scorpio 6 <laughs> that's true yeah, um, yeah, yeah. perhaps they, they shelved that um, in the the kind of the fallout from Scorpio 5 and yeah and, yeah and the fallout from Scorpio 5 but what you quickly realise is that the fallout from Scorpio 5 hasn't reached the public I love this I yeah. love this yeah the fallout from Scorpio 5 hasn't reached the public so Scorpio 7 is about to take off on a very similar mission perhaps with a very similar outcome yeah who knows but um, what you learn is that the public have been told that that Wes McManus and Wells are in quarantine yeah they're under observation they're under observation and that they're sending their best wishes to the crew of the Scorpio 7 yeah so none of this has ever been made public and they're still sending people up there presumably to die I think that's a really a really cool sinister ending it's kind of like that because it's super dark but also it's it's quite easy to miss it's like just kind of tossed off it's like a total throwaway comment but it's so dark and uh, all this is happening while Steve's been scooped into a bucket which I think really adds to the kind of the weirdness of it and the kind of the darkness of the whole situation and then it cuts just before we cut to the credits it cuts to another flash of solar flares this stock footage of solar flares very briefly Yeah, and that's us done we're done. I think it's fucking amazing. I think it's great. Like, so this was an interesting one, and I think that one that you were always going to get to at some point. I think, yeah, it was inevitable that, I, that we would come around to this. Yeah, so I hadn't seen it before. I hadn't seen it until a couple of hours ago. Yeah. I I think it's it's fairly obvious that I don't like this as much as you do, but I was never going to. Yeah, no, no, no. Um, um, there's very few people out there, in fairness, in fairness to the Incredible Mountain Man, 
Yeah. Um, there's very few people out there that like it as much as I do, or that hold it in the kind of as high regard. Yeah, it? and it's not even that I'm holding it in a highest regard. It's it's it kind of means a lot to me. Mm-hmm. Um, it was one of those films that made me find the films that I love and the kind of films I wanted to make. Mm-hmm. It's one that I probably watch more than I watch, uh, certainly more than I watch The Fly, which I also love, uh-huh. or any of the other films that I mentioned earlier. It's one that I watch significantly more than any of them. It's yeah. a film, actually, that I would love to remake. If you were to remake it, uh-huh. what would you change? Well, I did write a script, which I didn't do anything with. I just wrote it to write it. That's why I'm asking. Um, <laughs> but there's certainly a lot more about, you'll be happy to hear, certainly a lot more about Steve's background in it. Okay. Um, Steve has a partner in it as well. Right, he features right. quite heavily in it. Yeah, it, there's a lot more about Steve the man and Steve's conflict, certainly as it relates to the actions that he's taken. And it's a hell of a lot gorier. Sounds good. Yeah, it's certainly one of those, one of the very few films I would ever consider remaking because I, I definitely think there's time hasn't necessarily been kind to it, mm-hmm. and critics weren't kind to it at the time. Yeah. But I think there's a seed there of something really strong, and there are those moments where it comes through, like the that kind of weird twisty joke ending, the little moments where you do see those glimpses of Steve, and there are moments of real where the horror aspects really, really work. Yeah, um, I agree. There's just a few moments that maybe haven't aged particularly well and a yeah. few moments that aren't executed as well as they perhaps could have been. Yeah. But I think there's a lot to a lot to like in The Incredible Melton Man and I really, truly believe that it doesn't deserve the reputation that it has and I don't think it deserves a lot of the hate that it gets. See, I really don't. I think there's, there's a charm to it and there's a heart to it because what you really have is a guy trying to save his friend. Yeah, or a whole bunch of people trying to save their friend because Major Perry, uh, General Perry, sorry, says that he is also friends with Steve. Yeah, we know that uh, Judy is friends with Steve. These are people that are genuinely concerned for the well-being of this man, um, and they they only want the best for him and they want to help him yeah. and stop him from being something that they know he is not. Yeah, and that, that's all they're trying to do. They're trying to take him back. They're not trying yeah. to kill him. You know, no, like, and it's and it's a real tragedy. Steve didn't ask for this. Steve didn't want to go down this road. And yeah, I think there's a lot in The Incredible Melton Man that people don't really consider. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I, I see what you're saying. I mean, I, I, I think that how I would frame that is I think that there is potential for stuff that isn't explored. There, I think. But, um, but, no, I, agree, no, yeah, and I, th- but I think that also, I think that you're hitting on something there. And this ties in with what I always say about I never come away from these conversations like in a film less. Uh-huh. And I think that maybe the, something that I hadn't considered about this was the fact that what you're basically looking at are three people who are all just kind of like out for somebody's well-being. Yeah. I don't know if I don't know if that's something that necessarily occurred to me the entire time I was it's watching it. It's also worth mentioning at this point that this isn't necessarily the film that William Sachs thought he was making. Go on. William Sachs had a very different idea for the film. Um he wanted this more kind of campier creature feature type thing. The studio interfered in a lot of what he did like all the stuff with the spaceship and stuff like that. Um, he never wanted any of that in there. He never wanted any of Steve's backstory to be revealed until the very end of the film where you learn that he's an astronaut. Okay. Um, all the stuff with the nurse and all that stuff was all shot later. Really? Um, I think some. I think a lot of it was shot without his knowledge. Oh, as okay. Well. Um, so there was a lot, certainly a lot of meddling there. Um, the studio wanted to go down a much more straight horror route. Right, okay. So I think there's definitely a conflict of styles in there right. that shows quite a bit at times. Yeah, would you? Like if you were to t- if you think about perhaps st- uh, Sax's approach to it, maybe plays in closer to the stuff with Helen and Harold and maybe the stuff with the kids. 
Yeah. Um, whereas maybe the stuff with the more strong horror moments, perhaps, were stuff that were kind of forced upon him. His hands was kind of forced a little bit. Okay. Yeah. It's maybe worth remembering that this isn't exactly the film that was intended. And I think that that always kind of like, always kind of skews what I think of things when you know that. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And when you something back, absolutely. I think it's 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 interesting, but it's also it just kind of it makes you kind of very curious for what not necessarily what a director's cut would look like, but what an original vision was. Yeah. But a good one to bring, I think. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, I'm glad I've seen it, and I like to say I I without coming up necessarily that far on the positive end of the spectrum, I would say that I think that it's really undeserving of a lot of the kind of bail. Oh, thank you. Like, well, that's that's lovely for me to hear that because. Um, just today we had a we had a tweet. Sorry to get off and go on a feedback section out with the mini. We can revisit. But, uh, yeah, it's fine. Dave Cooper at Deluxe Man got in touch saying, "Incredible melting man, what a crock of shite! Can't wait to hear you defend this. Admittedly, it's good and gooey, but just plain awful in every other respect. I, I couldn't disagree more with that. I think that that's an extremely harsh interpretation. Yeah. I like, like, like I have my share of problems with it, but I think that there's there's merit in there." I absolutely think so. I really don't think it deserves half of the vitriol it gets. There's a real heart to, an inc- to the Incredible Melting Man and a playfulness as well, which I like. There's a lightness, a touch at points to the, these weird and ancill- certainly to the weird and ancillary characters. Uh-huh. You've got the real heavy main story beats between um, Nelson and his wife and, and Perry and, and Steve and all that stuff, but then you have these moments, uh, these characters that all crop up in the middle that are nonsense characters they're 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 kind of throwaway yeah um and they provide a lot of a lot of levity Mm -hmm. yeah i want to open up the floor to this one i'm looking forward to hearing what the feedback is this week i want to get like because i took more out of this than i expected to i think you and me tend to our tastes overlap quite a bit but i would say i was still surprised by um how much i found to like in here Mm -hmm. i even amidst the things that i kind of had some problems with but if you want to get in touch let us know what you think and please do. Uh, you can get us on Facebook and Instagram at Strong Language Violent Scenes. You can tweet us as well at Strong Violent PC. And you can also email us at Strong Language Violent Scenes at gmail.com. As always, if you want to listen, uh, you can check us out on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Podbean. So thanks a lot for joining us. And thanks to you for bringing us to the table for our first guestless one in a while. You're very welcome. Uh, do you want to do a bit where you ask me what I've got coming up? Or are we going oh, to yeah, Andy, your... anything you want to plug? Uh, yeah, uh, check out Mannequins before Book of Monsters at Fright Fest if you're going. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's uh, Dave Malcolm's Mannequins, which I produced. Uh... Yeah, you did indeed. You did indeed. <laughs> Yep. Yeah, it's only fair that I give you the window to plug stuff. Yeah, fuck it, why not? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I made you do the 30-second synopsis. Yeah, so and I give... also listen to a podcast that I do called Strong Language of Violence Scenes with I've... a guy called Mitch Bain. I've heard it's good. He's got a beard. I've heard it's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah like, like, I've heard that that other guy knows fuck all, but... Um, it's but not that he right. knows fuck all, he's watched fuck all. All right, okay. But he's getting there. <laughs> I'll get him there. We will be back, of course, on Monday, 8am BST with Minisode 15. Until then, don't forget, you've never seen anything until you've seen the sun through the rings of Saturn. Good night. Oh, I can't believe you did that. Oh, good night. You've been listening to Strong Language and Violent Scenes with Andy Stewart and Mitch Bain. Strong Language and Violent Scenes theme by Mitch Bain. Production and artwork by Andy Stewart. Find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Podbean.